Part One, Chapter Thirteen of The Dead Letter by Meta Victoria Fuller Victor. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The shadow assumes shape. We now lighted our lamp, and finding a light cane sofa in the hall, nearly opposite the locked door, we took seats, and kept ourselves awake by talking. The storm had subsided into the monotonous patter of a steady rain. "'I am surprised,' said Mr. Burton, "'that you did not at once comprehend the secret of this house. The moment you spoke the word haunted, I knew how our investigations would end. It solved a mystery which has bothered me for some time. I knew that Lisey Sullivan was here, in this vicinity.' The exact hiding-place was all I wanted to know, and when you mentioned Moreland Villa, I said to myself, that's it. All I was afraid of was that she would again elude us before we could lay hands on her, and, in fact, he added laughingly, I hardly feel sure of her now. She may sublime through the ceiling before morning. I did not think of her, Mr. Burton. I was quite sure some person was playing some game, either of mischief or worse, about the villa. But how could I be certain? when two thorough daylight examinations failed to reveal anything. There did not seem to be a place at which a person could enter the house, and as for a woman and a child being actual inmates, living and subsisting here for weeks, I think nothing but actual proof could have convinced me of the marvel. I am curious to know how she managed it. "'I ought to have come here at first,' continued my friend, pursuing his train of thought. "'Women are like mother birds when boys approach the nest.' They betray themselves and their cherished secret by fluttering about the spot. If Miss Sullivan had been a man, she would have been in Kansas or California by this time. Being a woman, I ought to have looked for her in exactly the place it would seem natural for her to avoid. One thing is certain. She loved young Moreland with an intensity beyond the strength of most women. I have had to do with natures like hers before, where a powerful brain is subservient to a still more powerful emotional force. She was proud, ambitious, discontented, with tastes and perceptions reaching up to a much higher sphere of life. Miss Sullivan would have made a magnificent heiress and pet daughter, yet in love she would be humble, self-abnegating, give all and count it nothing. It's a sad pity such a capacity for happiness should have brought only ruin. If she had loved Henry, how could she, under any impulse of jealousy, have injured him? She is terrible to me in any view of the case. I do not know that she did injure him, or cause him to be injured circumstances are against her but i am far from believing her the guilty person yet i am exceedingly anxious to have a quiet interview with her i must see her and talk with her alone she is frightened now and defiant i shall soothe her magnetize her will as it were and draw from her the truth every atom of knowledge which she has in any way connected to henry morland i shall draw from her and consolidate into one mass to be used for or against her if you have the reliance upon my judgment, which I flatter myself you have, Richard, you will not object to my seeing Miss Sullivan alone, and deciding, upon that interview, whether there are causes for her arrest as a party to the murder. I shall not object. It is your privilege to see her alone, and I have the utmost confidence in you. I suppose Mr. Argyll and Henry's father would be the proper persons to decide upon the arrest and prosecution. Of course and if, after I have talked with her, I can elicit no facts to warrant her being put on trial for her life, I shall not give her her liberty until I have consulted both families, laying all my evidence before them. They will be loath to begin a prosecution which they cannot sustain, even if they have an impression of guilt. By the way, Redfield, these impressions are curious things. Supposing I should tell you there are persons who, 
without one particle of proof of any kind, have an impression that you are the guilty man. I arose from the sofa, looking at him, not knowing whether or not to knock him down. Don't slay me with a look, he said, laughing quietly. I don't say that I have any such inner revelation. And I did not say this either to hurt your feelings. I did it to save them. For if I mistake not, the same person who confided his impressions to me has recently been gradually confiding them to others. The very thought, the very possibility, once entertained, or half entertained, and driven away again, as an unwelcome guest, still has its injurious influence. You are standing upon an earthquake, Richard. You may be swallowed up any instant. I? Yes, I have detected the premonitory rumblings. I have said this only to warn you that you may be ready for self-defense. I scorn to defend myself. Defend myself, forsooth. Against what? Who has dared to insinuate that thought against me, which you have allowed yourself to echo? But I need not ask. It is my natural foe, James Argyle. He hates me as the rattlesnake hates the black ash tree. Well, the dislike is mutual. Will you deny that you too have had a thought, mind, I say, a mere floating thought, that he may have instigated the deed? My conscious eye sunk before the steel-blue glance which pierced me. God knows such a fear, such a belief, at times vague and shadowy, again vivid but bright as lightning, had again and again troubled me. I have hinted at it once, when I said that I was glad that if James ever took money, unpermitted, from his uncle, he took it to waste at the gaming-table. Soon I raised my eyes. If I have had such a suspicion, I have struggled against it. I have never breathed it into a mortal ear. He has sought to injure me in various ways. I have wished to win and conciliate him, to be friendly with him, for the sake of my regard for his relatives. As to taking a step to fix a blasting stigma upon him, without giving him a chance openly to efface it, I am incapable of it. You are at liberty to judge between us, Mr. Burton. You know that I do not like him, answered my companion, but no aversion which I may feel for him shall prevent my weighing all facts which come under my observation, with the utmost impartiality. I am on the right track in this pursuit, and I shall follow it up to the dark end, though you yourself abandon it. Justice shall be meted out. If the bolt strikes the loftiest head in all this aristocratic vicinity, it shall fall where it belongs. He left the sofa, walking up and down the corridor with a stern, thoughtful face. As for me, I sunk back on my seat, overwhelmed by the confirmation of a thousand times more than my worst fears. Suspicion of me was creeping like a shadow over the Argyle household. I had felt its approach long ago. Now my whole being grew cold, freezing, except one burning spasm of indignation which throbbed in my breast. As the grey dawn approached, the rain ceased. Morning was long in coming. As soon as it grew light enough to see, I heard the gardener cutting wood for the fire, and shortly after I walked over, at Mr. Burton's request, to ask for some breakfast for the woman and child. I will not describe the garrulous astonishment of the husband and wife upon my announcement that the ghost was cornered and proved to be Lisey Sullivan. Of course the evil omen of hearing children crying was now explained, as well as the disappearance of a considerable quantity of flour, condiments, and apples, which Mrs. Scott had charged to the rats. It went sorely against the inclination of the formal, correct Mrs. Scott, to furnish a comfortable breakfast to such a jade as that seemed likely to prove, behaving in this style, 
which nobody on earth could account for. But the gratification of her feminine curiosity was some reward for the outrage to her sensibilities, and she went with great expedition to carry the desired refreshments to the prisoners. When we entered the attic in the light of the rising sun, Miss Sullivan was sitting quietly on the edge of the mattresses, curling little Nora's flaxen hair around her fingers. An obstinate reticence marked her looks and actions. She scarcely replied to any of Mrs. Scott's inquiries, only when the comfort of the child was concerned. For her, she took some of the warm food and tea, quietly feeding the eager little girl while we made a survey of her surroundings. I now ascertained that a small skylight, hidden from outside view by the chimneys and ornamental work of the battlements, had given egress to the mysterious brightness which had hovered so frequently over the roof. The tenant of this great house had evidently arranged herself for the winter. She had chosen the attic as a place of greatest safety in the case of parties entering the deserted dwelling for any purpose. Here she had brought a tiny charcoal furnace, used in the basement in summertime, for the purpose of heating smoothing irons, which she supplied with fuel from the stock left over in the cellar. The provisions left in the house had served her wants equally well. It was evident that by the exercise of extreme care and vigilance, leaving the house only in the darkness of the night, she might have remained here for a considerable longer time, undisturbed in her novel seclusion, had not the light, which she had never ventured to burn until all was dark and silent in the little cottage, by chance first attracted the curiosity which led finally to discovery. Mr. Burton took a cup of tea in a roll, brought to him there, and then, at his request, he was left alone with the silent woman, who sat there with resolute brows and lips firmly closed, as if locked over her thoughts. "'It will require all his diplomacy to wile her into a communicative mood,' was my decision, as I took a parting glance at her face. I was chilled with my night's watching, and chilled more utterly by the words the detective had spoken to me as I watched. I returned to the cottage fire, sitting there three hours, in a painful reverie, answering almost at random the remarks of the housekeeper. At the close of the three hours Mr. Burton came into the little dwelling, carrying Nora in his arms, who was stroking his cheek with her chubby hand, and followed by the sewing-girl, whose cheeks bore traces of tears, and whose haunted, defiant look had given place to a dejected, gentle expression. "'Mrs. Scott, I want you to do me a kindness,' he said, in his authoritative, persuasive manner, to which people seldom thought it worth while to object. "'I want you to take care of Miss Sullivan and this little cousin of hers, until I send them word they are wanted. It may be to-day, or not for a week. In the meantime, if you have any sewing to be done for yourself or little Johnny, she will be glad to help you.' "'She is welcome to stay, I'm sure,' said the woman, in a tone not quite so sure. "'Thank you. I knew I could ask a favour of you. Johnny, come here, and make Miss Nora's acquaintance.' "'I'm ready, Richard, if you are, to return to the village. Lenore will wonder what has become of us. Good morning, all.' We walked away. "'Are you not afraid to leave that girl unguarded, after all the trouble she has given us?' "'She will stay there. She has promised me. If she chooses to run away, now, it is a matter of no consequence. I am perfectly entirely convinced that she is innocent of any participation in the murder of Henry Morland, or any knowledge of the murder.' except upon one point I could use her testimony. I shall give my opinion to Mr. Argyle, with my grounds for it. If he chooses to arrest her, she will be there at the cottage. 
"'Richard, this affair has gone as far as it can. I shall tell Mr. Argyle to-day that I have withdrawn from it, that I give it up. But I am willing you should understand that I have not dropped it entirely, that I shall still retain my interest in it, still secretly pursue my investigations, which I believe I can carry on to the best advantage, if all parties believe that I have given the matter up. Are you satisfied?' "'If I am not, what difference does it make? It is not for me to dictate your course. I believe that you think it is the best one.' "'I do. So will you some day, if we live to see the termination of this thing. In the meantime, I am your friend, Richard, whether I give any outward signs of friendship very soon or not. You are at liberty to devote yourself to the cause as ardently as ever, and if ever you wish to consult me, you will find me what you now know me.' I felt strangely, as we walked along together, he talked as if he thought some change were coming, as if things were to assume new shapes, as if I were to need friendship, and yet as if he should be compelled to conceal his for me behind a mask of coldness. I did not understand it. I felt half offended with him, and wholly disheartened. I dined with him at Mr. Argyle's. It was the last time I sat at that table. In the afternoon he had a private interview with the family, from which I was excluded and in the evening he returned to the city, taking with him Lenore, the last wave of whose hand was for James, her last kiss for Miss Argyle. The next morning Mr. Argyle informed me that he had resolved to make his nephew his partner in the practice of the law, and that I was at liberty to take advantage of any other opportunity I might have for going into business for myself. His manner was cold. He expressed no regrets for my probable disappointment, caused by his own suggestions. I could feel myself dismissed from his friendship as well as his office. I would not ask why. My tongue grew dry as ashes when I thought of attempting it. Mr. Burton had given me the clue to the feelings which prompted this rupture of a lifelong friendship. It was such as to forbid any questions. No explanations could be made. Nothing could obliterate the memory of so deadly a wrong as they were committing upon me. The golden bowl of friendship was broken at the fountain the waters spilled upon the ground. I told him that I had contemplated a visit to my mother, which I would take this opportunity to make. I might find what I wished for, in the way of business, in the vicinity of my father's former home, when, with formal thanks for his past kindness, which I was mentally vowing I should find some means to repay, and begging him to trouble himself not at all about my fortunes, I bowed myself from the office where I had spent so much of the last three years of my life. Blind, dizzy, cold, I went to my boarding-house to pack my trunks. Before I went to bed my few arrangements were completed. My clothes, books, the few little articles of taste or gifts of friends, allowable in one small rented room, were easily put away in their travelling receptacle. But, as for the rest, for the wealth which my heart had silently garnered during the golden harvest of youth, where was it, swept away as if by a mighty wind? I slept some, for I was thoroughly worn out by my emotions, no less than by my recent vigils, but the earliest morning found me awake. I was to leave at noon. I had many pleasant acquaintances in the village, from whom I ought not to have parted without a farewell call, but all these small pleasures and courtesies of life were swept aside, as sand upon my path. I had nothing to do, all the tedious morning, save to pretend to eat my breakfast, until the hour which I had set in my thoughts for saying good-bye to the girls. I would not go away without seeing them. 
If there was any accusation in their eyes, I would confront it. And then I did not believe that Eleanor would do me an injustice. Blue-eyed, just, gentle as was her character, she, at least, was grieved for me, believed in me. I did not admit to myself how much comfort I drew from this faith, until I was startled from it. My baggage was dispatched. My watch told eleven. I passed the house on the way to the cars, giving myself a few minutes for this farewell. As I knocked at the door, one of the servants opened it. I sent her to ask Miss Argyle if she would come down to say good-bye before I left on my visit to my mother, and Mary, I would like to see her also. While I waited for them, I stepped into the dear familiar parlors and library, mutely taking my leave of them with all their mingled associations. Presently the messenger returned. Miss Argyle sent her farewell. She could not see Mr. Redfield that morning. Where is she? In the breakfast-room, looking at her flowers. I started for the room in a wild tumult of anger and passion, resolved to make her confess the reason of this treatment. Surely three years of an intimacy like ours gave me the right. In three minutes I confronted her where she stood, in the door between the breakfast-room and conservatory, like a statue draped in crape. Eleanor! She shrunk back. She held up her hands with an expression of horror. My God! That look in Eleanor's eyes was enough to kill me. I turned away as hastily as I had come. As I stumbled along the passage, half blind with the terrible surging and throbbing of the blood through me, a soft pair of arms fell about my neck. A cheek wet with tears was pressed to mine. It was Mary. "'Never mind what they say about you, Richard,' she sobbed. "'I don't believe one word of it. Not one word. I never shall. I am your friend. I love you. Indeed I do. I do not want you to go away.' and she kissed me twice or thrice. I took the sweet face in my cold hands, looked into the brimming eyes, hastily kissed the blushing cheek. "'God bless you, Mary,' said I, and was gone. End of Part 1 Chapter 13 End of the Part 1st